It's Monday, March 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. COVID-19, the coronavirus, continues to disrupt everyday life in the U.S. and around the world. In the U.S., there are now over 3,100 cases and over 60 deaths. New travel restrictions are also being put in place for people coming from the U.K. and Ireland, in addition to those already in place for Europe. This is leading to massive lines at airports that are trying to screen citizens as they return. We also learned that President Trump has tested negative for the virus as the administration continues to weigh out options for keeping the economy going while we all practice social distancing. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to talk about the politics of coronavirus. Next, we know that older people are most at risk for getting severe symptoms from coronavirus. But why aren't children getting that sick? Studies have shown that children can contract the virus at the same rates as adults, but the symptoms are not as bad. It all could come down to a person's underlying health condition. While the immune system is fighting the virus, it could also be exacerbating these underlying health factors. Megan Multaney, staff writer at Wired, joins us for why COVID-19 isn't affecting kids the same way as others. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The president has made a decision to suspend all travel to the United Kingdom and Ireland, effective midnight, Monday night, Eastern Standard Time. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Coronavirus COVID-19 continues to disrupt life in the United States and across the world as of now. And these numbers all are always changing. The United States has over 3,100 cases I think it's over 60 deaths. But right now, the latest is these travel restrictions. The president just tested negative for the virus after he was getting a lot of questions from reporters. He said, I got tested. It came back negative. So he's safe. But uh, these travel restrictions, we have travel restrictions from Europe. And on Monday, we're adding the UK and Ireland. But what's happening is that these restrictions are not to U.S. citizens. So they can still come back to the United States. And over the weekend, it caused a whole hell of a mess at all of the airports, these 13 airports where they had to come in to get medically screened. That's right. We have seen the U.S. and the response to the coronavirus sort of rapidly escalate between last week and into this week. Lots of changes, lots of new responses. Life was pretty much moving like normal on Tuesday and Wednesday. And as you said, by Monday, restrictions on people traveling, not just from China that were already in place, but now from Europe and the UK. We saw over the weekend long lines forming, as you mentioned, at these airports where people were coming into the United States and having to be screened, creating a little bit of concern that if there was one person in these crowded lines, they were then transmitting it to all the people around them. Yeah, we're supposed Uh, to be practicing social distancing, but at these airports, it's pretty impossible. Cram everybody into a room to try to get them through the screenings. But this is the product of what happens when you try to mass change very quickly rules, screening procedures, and without at least initially the staff to do this. So we saw this sort of fallout. President Trump tweeting on Sunday for people to please pardon the delays, I think was his word, asking people to understand that they were doing this to keep people safe. They were trying to catch anyone. We haven't seen any examples yet where they might have caught someone coming in with the virus and what they're going to do about all of the people that were in these lines with them at the same time. 
But this is really sort of what happens when you try to just rapidly change the way we're handling travel, both internationally and and the potential it could seem for some domestic at the drop of a hat. It's really difficult, if not impossible, we're seeing to make these changes very quickly. As of right now, and this could change, obviously the numbers are always changing very fast. West Virginia is the only state with no confirmed case of COVID-19 right now. And a lot of the discussion is, should we shut down domestic travel also just to help? I think the Florida governor was urging the president to restrict domestic travel. Let's be clear. Shutting down domestic travel is harder than it is to shut down foreign travel. In the same way, as you pointed out, these are restrictions on foreign nationals, people from other countries traveling in the United States. They have not stopped Americans from returning to the country. Uh, We are not like China, where when they put restrictions, domestic travel restrictions in place, not only did they put restrictions, but they tracked people's cell phones and they used cameras, you know, CCTV to see what people were doing. We don't have that ability here in the United States. Shutting down domestic travel is really hard. Also, keep in mind the president can't quarantine people in the United States. He can stop people at the border. But the power to quarantine is invested in state governments. This was done to keep our federal government from becoming too powerful. And so those type of restrictions are going to be very difficult to implement, even in the wake or in the face of a global pandemic. Let's talk about the next steps for the administration, because all of this shutting down travel and whatnot, social distancing, all of the advice which people should be following, don't go out into these large public gatherings and all that. But it's really going to affect the economy. You know, a lot of people, especially let's talk about the sports industry, right? People that work at the arenas, the cashiers, the janitors, all that, everybody's going to be affected in some way, especially the airline uh, industries and the cruise line industry. We're talking about those. So the next steps for the administration are to figure out who to bail out and how much to help bail them out with. Yeah, I think what you're talking about here is two different problems. First off, we're going to see, as you mentioned, industries and business facing a lot of economic troubles. We see airlines talking about how they can pare down their flights, how they can pare down their staff and their costs. Cruise ships, which aren't going to be able to depart a cruise for the next month. The food industry, the sports industry, so many industries that depend upon people leaving their houses and going out and giving them money. They won't be able to do that. And when you look at something like the food industry, there's not pent up buying afterwards. You know, if you were going to buy some new clothes and now you're not going to go to the mall and in three weeks they say, okay, now it's time to go to the mall. You'll just go buy those clothes you were going to buy last week, but you're not going to go out and buy all the food you were going to have bought last week. There will be no pent up demand there. And then the second half of this is all the people who work in those jobs. They're not going to get paid to show up and sell hot dogs at a baseball game if there are no baseball games. They're not going to make tips off of the meals if they're waiting tables. And so we see government trying to figure out how to handle both of those things. Can people qualify for unemployment? Is that going to put a strap on the unemployment system? Can people qualify for uh, other benefits that they themselves get sick? And then how do we help the industries? And are there bailouts? Are there tax things to be done to help companies that would have, might otherwise go out of business without business, without shoppers or consumers for the next several weeks? And the House did pass a measure to help with all of this. I think it still has to go through the Senate, but the president has indicated that he supports this. And this has stuff like paid leave uh, for people that can be affected by all of this as well. That's right. We saw this big negotiated package come out of the House very late on Friday. My understanding is it's going to need some technical tweaks, which happens sometimes. 
with bills that are written and released in the middle of the night. The House is expected to pass those without even voting, uh, without even all their members being there on Monday morning. And then this goes to the Senate. And we uh, did get an indication from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell that the support would be there for this, that they would work to try to move this as quickly as they can. Uh, We saw in the House 40 votes against the package, people who felt that it was irresponsible or not being done in the right way. It only takes one senator to slow it down in the Senate. If there's one like-minded senator, we'll see if that happens, but do expect it to move through the Senate pretty quickly. And then Nancy Pelosi said as soon as they got this bill out, they would start negotiating the next one because there were pieces that they hadn't been able to address in this legislation and that they would keep going. So Congress as a whole is trying to move as quickly as Congress can to get some kind of response done. Finally, let's just talk about uh, the response to this overall. The White House has gone through this evolution. At first, it was like, well, it's not a big deal. It's not here yet. And kind of dragging their feet on this whole thing. Then when the administration realized, okay, this is really going to be something, the WHO obviously declared COVID-19 a worldwide pandemic. Then they changed. They started putting a lot more effort into it. And I think we're getting on pace, even though you hear guys like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's on the coronavirus task force, saying, We still got a long way to go. You know, we're behind in a lot of different ways. But how has the public been reacting to this? There was a Wall Street Journal NBC news poll that found that it's I mean, the president's overall ratings haven't changed much, but very much along party lines will depend on how effective you see their uh, what they're doing here. Yeah, I think that what we're seeing is what we've seen with President Trump all along, which is that what people think about him is pretty set and there's very little that's going to be done to change their mind. We do see a poll out that showed Democrats think he's doing a terrible job. Republicans think he's doing a great job in about equal numbers. It doesn't surprise me. I think we sort of hit a perfect storm here in terms of what people think about government. We've got conservatives who generally think the government's role is unsuccessful, that they wouldn't be able to handle something like this, that we need the private sector. And then liberals who might be inclined to think government can help don't think this government or this particularly run government can help. So we are seeing a lot of sort of that response play out and how people are watching this. But when it comes to the president himself, not surprised that fans of the president think he's doing well and people who don't like the president think he's doing badly. Yeah. 53 percent say they are very or somewhat worried about someone in their family becoming sick. Forty seven percent express less or no concern. So even on that front, people are just kind of right in the middle with this whole thing. But things are going to be changing. We're going to have to adapt and, and we'll see how it continues to develop. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The good news in this outbreak so far is that children tend to be relatively spared in terms of symptoms of coronavirus, but that doesn't mean that they can't go on and act as vectors of spread and spread to other people. So this is part of aggressive social distancing. Joining us now is Megan Multaney, staff writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Thanks for having me. We're still trying to learn more about COVID-19, the coronavirus, and how people get affected by it. Right now, a single contagious person can affect about 2.2 others on average. Globally, 3.4% of reported COVID patients have died. These numbers are all subject to change as we get more infections and we get to drill down a little bit more on what's happening. But one of the big questions that has been, because we've seen the deaths and we've seen the severe cases mostly in older adults, mostly having underlying health conditions, 
but the big question is where have all the kids gone? Like what's happening to children that are being infected with the virus? Because usually when there's some type of respiratory disease, something like that, it tends to affect young kids and older people. So we're trying to figure out exactly why there haven't been that many severe cases in children. Megan, there's a few studies that have come out about this now. What do we know? Yeah, so, you know, there have been some recent analyses um, looking at cases coming out of China that have indicated that children under the age of 10 um, account for less than 1% of all infections. Um, According to the World Health Organization, their data shows that about 2.4% of reported cases in China were children under the age of 10. So those are still, you know, if it's somewhere between 1% and 2.4%, it's still a, a pretty small case. And if we look at, you know, cases of where children got critically ill, that's happening even less, like 0.2% of the time. China has yet to report any instances of a young child dying of the disease caused by this you know, new novel coronavirus. So for the last, you know, number of weeks, as, um, you know, these cases have passed 100,000 globally, we're just seeing very few kids um, in, in the case numbers. The interesting thing is that children are not necessarily not being infected. They are being diagnosed with COVID-19. They're just not getting as sick as some older people. Yeah. So for the last few weeks, there's kind of been this question of, you know, are kids not getting infected and that's why we're seeing the low case numbers or do they just have much more mild um, response to the virus? And so they're not showing up because they're not, you know, presenting symptoms that would, um, you know, allow them to get diagnosed. And so a new study came out um, last week. It was published to a preprint server. And instead of just looking at case data, it actually looked at contact tracing. So this is a process by which um, health officials will go out and find people who have been exposed to patients of COVID-19 and then track all of those people and monitor them and see if they get sick or not. And so that starts to build a a more detailed picture of something called the attack rate. So how often the virus actually spreads into people of different age groups when they've kind of been exposed to the same number of infected people. And so looking at that data, which was actually collected by the Chinese CDC in Shenzhen province, which is about 700 miles to the south of where the kind of epicenter of the outbreak was in Hubei, they were able to identify about 400 patients and about 1,200 people who'd been in close contact. And when they looked at that data, what they found was that the virus basically appears to infect children at the same rates that they infect adults. So between seven and eight percent of the time that someone is exposed to an infected person, they themselves would get the disease. And that was true whether that person was in their 60s or that person was under the age of 10. So this is the first time we're seeing data emerge that suggests that, in fact, kids can get the disease just as much as anyone else can. It's just that they appear to have much milder symptoms than adults and particularly people in the kind of elderly age cohort. So then that leads us to believe underlying health conditions seem to be a key factor in the severity of COVID-19 when, you know, it starts going crazy in their bodies. Also, their immune system, the response of the immune system seems to be a double-edged sword because it's trying to fight the virus, but it's also fighting the body itself, damaging healthy tissue sometimes. And 
other people have said, going back to the children, they don't have a lot of these underlying health conditions. Their lungs haven't been as going through uh, years and years of inflammation. And these little things could be helping children have these milder symptoms. So at this point, these are hypotheses because we don't have the kind of experimental data that we would need to prove these out. I'm sure those studies will be coming. But what you've talked about relies on some older research on a related coronavirus, the coronavirus that causes SARS. There was an outbreak of that in 2002 and 2003 in China. And so scientists who over the last decade or so have been studying SARS in the lab, what they have seen is that as mice get older and older, they have worse and worse symptoms and worse and worse outcomes um, with SARS. And because of the way that SARS, um, it has what's called kind of a biphasic pattern where you kind of have this big surge of symptoms right after infection when the virus is replicating heavily in the lungs. And so you get that fever, you get that cough. And then it dies down as the immune system kicks in. And then for patients who experience the worst symptoms, patients who often died, they kind of saw an uptick in symptoms that this time they, you know, researchers believe was not being caused by the virus itself, but by an immune system that had turned on and was kind of in overdrive and not able to turn itself off. And so their data from epidemiological studies of SARS patients, as well as Um, lab animals that have been infected with SARS has kind of built up this body of evidence that suggests that the immune response is as important in determining how severe someone's symptoms are with the SARS-like coronaviruses as the virus itself. And so we have reason to believe that this new virus that causes COVID-19 may, um, you know, may provoke a similar, a similar set of circumstances in patients. And so that's why we're seeing these higher mortality rates and and higher uh, set of severe symptoms in older patients. It's super important to understand why this is happening, why children aren't getting affected as seriously as some others, because when it comes down to public health officials being confronted with these choices, you know, we keep hearing a lot about social distancing and closing down concerts and all this other stuff, closing schools down even. Children are being infected at similar rates as normal adults, but they're not showing the symptoms. So it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, do you shut down more schools? Do you keep kids out of bigger areas just because they might have it, but not be showing the same amount of symptoms? So it's important to understand what's going on here. To some extent, it's still a little bit of an open question just to what extent kids are involved in what's called onward transmission. So we don't really know right now the extent to which kids who are maybe experiencing mild symptoms are going out and spreading the virus further. You know, if they're not having a bad cough, then they may not be shedding large amounts of virus on other people. So that's a place where ongoing research is going to be required to understand just how much kids are playing a role in spreading this disease. Now that we know that kids can get infected with it at the same rates as adults, that would suggest that, you know, closing schools is perhaps a more relevant strategy than if kids weren't getting infected in the first place, but still don't understand exactly what some of the transmission dynamics are. And so I think the probably cautious approach would be to act as though they are, you know, vectors of of disease transmission. Um, But like we said, that's not something we know for sure at this point. Megan Multaney, staff writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. 
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.